Thank you for downloading the Inspire Me podcast series, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Lindsay Parietti, filmmaker and journalist. Today, we have the wonderful Lindsay Perriatti. She is an American filmmaker and journalist who actually won a student BAFTA award for her nature documentary called Blood Island, uh, which she produced as a part of the UEMA Wildlife Filmmaking Program, which some of you might be on, some of you might have heard of. Uh, the short film tells the story of lab-tested chimpanzees abandoned on a remote island in Liberia. Pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, while still on the course, Lindsay successfully pitched a TV series to the BBC. Once commissioned, she became part of the BBC Natural History Unit crew that produced the three-part series Baby Chimp Rescue. I mean, even that name makes me want to cry. <laughs> um, <laughs> which aired on primetime BBC Two. The documentary follows the story of, of an amazing couple rescuing orphaned baby chimpanzees. Um, from the illegal pet trade, nurtured by a dedicated team of human carers. The chimps began to discover their individual personalities and develop the skills they'll need to live like wild chimps. I mean, it just sounds fantastic. Um, drawn to stories of social and environmental justice, she uses a documentary medium to advocate for the support and protection of the natural world. Through her films, she hopes to inspire empathy, action, and to empower people to make positive changes in the world around us. So really, really relevant to everything that's going on at the moment. Originally trained as a print journalist, Lindsay taught herself videography and photography amidst Egypt's revolution to help create an accurate record of what was happening on the ground. Her articles, videos and photography have appeared in Natural Geographic, Al Jazeera America, the Associated Press, Reuters, the Boston Globe, the Boston Herald, the Sunday Times and the Huffington Post, amongst many others. So quite an impressive quite an impressive introduction there. So yeah, I'm personally really looking forward, forward to this chat. So let's crack on with some of the questions. Um, so let's start from the beginning. Um, were you inspired at a young age to follow this path as a, as a journalist kind of filmmaker? And can you recall any moments of particular inspiration? Yeah, thanks Molly Rose for the introduction. Um, I was thinking how much journalism studies must have changed now from when I did it a long, long time ago. Like mm -hmm. we didn't have Twitter or anything like that, or any like social media that we had to manage at the same time. So you must be juggling a lot of things now. Um, in terms of, you know, being inspired at an early age, I think I never really knew what I wanted to do as a kid. I was one of those kids who, you know, if I saw something about a doctor on TV, I wanted to be a doctor and then I wanted to be a lawyer and then I wanted, I don't know, be a politician. So I think um, journalism was a good choice for me because you get to experience a little bit of everything and you, you kind of don't necessarily have to choose one career path because you could be with a doctor one day and a lawyer the next day and get a little glimpse into their world. And I really liked that about it. So there wasn't something you know, that made me know I wanted to be a journalist and a filmmaker at a really young age, but there definitely was an influence of nature. Like we were outside all the time playing in the woods behind our house. And my grandparents used to send us um, National Geographic magazines and videos and stuff. And I never really thought of that as a potential career option, I guess, until much later in life. So I was looking for um, a change from journalism after the revolution in Egypt. Um, and I thought, hey, you could actually get paid to do this for a job. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And you're totally right about 
journalism and filmmaking being like almost like the role for the indecisive <laughs> you yeah. know, we, we can we can choose what paths we want to follow um so you just mentioned the revolution in Egypt so where was it that you grew up um, so I grew up in upstate New York, and then I went to university in Boston in the States. But shortly after that, I moved to Egypt pre-revolution because um, it was kind of during the financial crisis in the U.S. when all the journalists were getting laid off and everything. And I thought if I moved abroad and learned Arabic, then I could get a job on a foreign reporting desk when I came back. And I just never came back. I ended up staying out there like eight years and then moving straight to Bristol after that. So. Wow. So that actually leads really nicely onto my next question. So you were in Egypt. So why did you choose Bristol? Why did you choose UWE to, to study wildlife filmmaking? Yeah, I think um, post-revolution, I mean, being in Egypt for the revolution and covering that was really exciting. And it felt really important, especially with a lot of the inaccurate and misleading narratives that were happening on state TV. Like the government was trying to pretend like protests weren't happening. They'd be broadcasting completely empty streets when there were hundreds of thousands of people out protesting. So that's why I kind of started teaching myself how to do videos. Like I had friends doing news hits on iPhone. So I was like, I can do that. You know, I started picking up cameras and then, you know, progressed to DSLRs and everything um, just to kind of help paint that picture. But then post-revolution, the state had kind of been really repressive obviously to all the protesters pretty much put everybody in jail were arresting and targeting like individual journalists and it just it just felt like it was kind of past the time when I could make any difference there so I was looking for something else to do um, and I went on a reporting fellowship to Rwanda and Democratic Republic of Congo and as part of that I watched the documentary Virunga for background um, which was set in DRC I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's an amazing story about these oil companies, um, BP and Total, that try to explore for oil uh, in really shady dealings in Africa's oldest national park. Um, and when I watched that, I just thought, yeah, documentary has so much potential to reach so many people, you know, who can't necessarily read an article in English. Um, lots of people, you know, have have televisions or have access to TVs who maybe don't aren't, you know, aren't literate. And it just has so much more reach than potentially print so I uh, decided to kind of go down that route mm. and did and and what brought you to UWE specifically um, well UWE had a great program it was obviously in the heart of Bristol which is the home the whole hub of wildlife filmmaking for the entire world uh, so it seemed like a sort of yeah a natural fit and I was really looking there were programs in the states in Australia and New Zealand that are longer they're two or three years but I was really looking for a sort of targeted career transition with really good industry links I wasn't interested in you know taking three years out of out of work and Bristol I think I didn't even quite realize when I applied for it how good it would be just because that program has such amazing ties to industry and it has such a good reputation now that kind of when as soon as you graduate all the film production companies in Bristol kind of want to snap you up basically so it's really good and it's getting better and better that's amazing to hear that like even though you looked at courses all over the world and you've kind of traveled quite a lot it's really nice to hear that actually yeah no Bristol has this hub and it is you know the the, the birthplace for this amazing kind of medium um, and yeah it's going from strength to strength and it's really interesting to hear how even you know you started in kind of print journalism but actually the world around you um, and the kind of politics of what was going on around you made you think of like, oh, what's a different medium that could access more people? Because um, you're right, as, as wonderful as print is, and that is where we should start, it can be alienating. 
because some people don't feel like they can access that. So that's really interesting. Um, do you have any favorite memories of your time at UWE? I think going out to Liberia to film um, my student film, Blood Island, was just an incredible trip, like meeting the chimpanzees, seeing um, Jimmy and Jenny, Jenny Desmond of Liberia Chimpanzee Rescue and the work that they were doing. It was just such a great time being out there. Obviously, it was a bit nerve wracking because I was quite, I was under pressure. I only had a few days to make the film after I did a sort of quarantine before you go to see the chimps. So it, it was fun, but it was like, yeah, a lot of pressure at the same time, but a great trip. And then the other one would probably be at the end of the master's program every year, the, all the students um, screen their films at Everyman Cinema in a private screening for the industry and family and friends. And it was really cool seeing, you know, all your course mates films up there on a cinema screen. Everybody's like hard work coming to this one kind of culminating point and just seeing Everybody is so creative in different ways. And I think the great thing about that course is like, it really allows you the freedom, but also gives you a structure to make a film completely about anything that you want, which might never happen for you again in your career. You know, you're always having to work to commissioners or other producers or executives like as a collaborative effort, but this is really like take your creative vision and run with it. And I think that was really cool to see what people did with it. Yeah, can you remember any of the other pieces in particular that you enjoyed? Yeah, there. Um, my friends made a film about the illegal songbird trade in Indonesia. So, um, I think young men. It's it's part of the culture there that in or, a part of your manhood, you know, like getting a house and getting married is having a songbird that they um, put in competitions, like singing competitions against the other birds. But they take them, you know, illegally out of the wild. A lot of them don't survive because they're not meant to be in captivity. Um, there was another great piece about um, the Moors and Dartmoor and kind of what it would look like if, you know, it was rewilded. There were just so many, like such a breadth of films. It was really great. Mm. And what gave you the idea specifically for Blood Island? Um, I went to a talk at Bristol Zoo. They do like monthly con uh, conservation talks. And it wasn't the subject of the talk at all, but somebody at the end mentioned um, blood chimps in Liberia. And I think that Ben Garrett, who was ended up being the presenter on the TV series that I made off the back of the student film, he might have been giving an upcoming talk on that subject. And that's why it was kind of mentioned, although I didn't know him at the time. It just my ears just sort of perked up and I went home and I started looking into this story of these um, biomedical research chimps. And like, I don't know, I think I know that when a story is good, when you start looking into it and you just uncover like another layer and another layer and another layer and you just your interest keeps growing in it um then you you kind of know it's really rich territory and that's what happened with that story so then I got in touch with Jenny Desmond who's out there looking after the chimps or who was at the time looking after the chimps um and said can I come out and make my master's film there and then just sort of went from there quite an organic process then that, yeah that led to it and could you just explain um can you just explain because I only like briefly peppered over it um in the introduction so so what what does what is Blood Island? What, do, what does the documentary involve? What are, what's, what's happened to these chimps? Well, I don't want to totally spoil it. It's on YouTube if anybody oh, wants okay, to. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so it's a story about this group of biomedical research chimps that were taken out of the wild in Liberia and West Africa in the 1970s. And they were used for um, vaccine research like hepatitis and other treatments at the time when, you know, chimpanzee research was pretty like accepted socially. Uh, but then as time went on, I think society realized like 
that chimpanzees, you know, they have a concept of their own captivity. They're very similar to us, you know, they're very sentient. Um, and public opinion was kind of turning against that. And science at the same time was realizing they're not the best model for um, disease testing, you know, for, um, for humans. Uh, so they stopped the research project and retired them to these islands, which was unusual in itself because usually when biomedical research ends, they euthanize the subjects. Um, and the American organization that was using them promised to look after them for life. And then during the Ebola crisis in 2015, completely pulled out and said to the Liberian government, you know, they're your problem now. So it's a story of what, what happens after that. Wow. Well, that was a good pitch. I'm definitely going to go and watch it. <laughs> did you say it was on YouTube? Yeah, it's on YouTube. On YouTube. Perfect. So um, how did it feel winning a BAFTA for your nature documentary? Like that, like a BAFTA, that's, that's like it, isn't it? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really surreal. They, um, the student BAFTAs are hosted in LA by the part of BAFTA that, that operates out of there with Hollywood. Uh, so they flew me out there um, and, you know, I got to go up on stage and, and get the award and everything, give a little speech. And it was just really, don't know, I'm surprised I didn't like black out or something. It was just so, so bizarre and surreal, but also it was a great opportunity to connect with other student filmmakers who were doing cool mm -hmm. projects in, you know, live action, animation and documentary. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a nice like kind of vote of confidence as I was starting this this film career, just sort of it's a nice affirmation to be like, yeah, okay, you're headed in the right direction, keep going. Yeah, definitely. And how did UE support you kind of like through that process? Like to what, did you put your film forward? Did UE put your film forward? Like how did that process come about? Um, the program director chooses like a few films every year to put forward. So I actually didn't, and he doesn't tell people, I think maybe he doesn't want them to be disappointed or something. So all of a sudden one day I just got an email from BAFTA saying you're, you're on the short list for this. And I'm like, what? <laughs> How did that happen? Wow. And then, yeah, then Peter told me and uh, then, you know, like a month later, they tell you you're in the, you're in the like final three and you, we want you to come out to LA and everything. So. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, you, I, I, you, it was really great. They helped me get out there as well. So that was really nice. And during your time at, at UE, kind of, you know, over, over the course of a year, you'd been in, you'd been in a career already. How did UE support you kind of like as a student through the whole process? Because sometimes coming back into education after you've already been in the career, kind of like sector for a yeah. while can be quite tricky so how did the university support you through that to to ultimately succeed so wonderfully in going to LA and getting a BAFTA <laughs> yeah I think that's the great thing about that program like it's quite small there's usually only about 15 people on it and some are you know straight out of their undergraduate degree and then others are kind of like me like later sort of career doing a career transition um, or going back to university um and they just provide so much support from start to finish. Like, like I said, it's a really creative, um, supportive environment for you to just take your vision and run with it. And they, they're not trying to fit you into some kind of mold of a filmmaker. It's really up to you to bring in your past experiences and kind of run with that in the direction you want to go in. And we're, we are all kind of at different levels in terms of camera skills, editing skills, like production skills. So everybody sort of help, the students help each other as well. And I think the best thing that UE does in the, prog the program director, Peter Van is amazing, is just create that really supportive environment so that people are helping each other and learning from each other as much as they are from the tutors. And then you get all the camera equipment provided for you. You get 
um, collaborations with the University of Bristol with a composer at the end to, to compose music for your film, which is amazing having bespoke music and, and also having that, it's all geared toward having all the sort of experiences that you would in the industry. So getting as a producer to work with a composer and kind of try to put into words what you want your music to sound like, to work with, you know, dubbing mixers in the studio post-production also is like great. Some people did fully like sound effects for their film as well. So you get, you get a great kind of overview of everything that you'll have once you finish the course, if you go into the industry. And do you feel like you really took advantage of access to all of all of that equipment? Because you knew when I come out of this, it's not going to be quite as easy to kind of uh, link up. Do you really feel like you took advantage of all of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think everyone did. Like everybody on that course is very motivated and it's just, it's also really fun. Like we get to make films. So it's yeah. it's just great. It's just go mess around with cameras and stuff. And I don't know how many times we went into Ashton Court and filmed the deer, which really don't do much. But... No, they don't. <laughs> they don't do much. No, they're beautiful. They're great. But yeah, there's, there's nothing particularly not like chimps you know yeah. I mean, if, you're, if you're not there for the rutting I mean when you know when they're doing the mating displays I don't you don't you don't get much except for them <laughs> walking on the field and pooing once in a while but it's it. still fun to be out there <laughs> yeah yeah you're totally right yeah it's such a beautiful campus though I'm, I'm excited to get back on it um so um what was your journey after you left UE what what how did that all start um so actually while I was still at uni while I was editing the master's film is when I pitched the TV series. So it was with the same couple who were looking after the biomedical chimps, but they also were getting, because people knew there were chimp experts now in country, they were bringing them chimpanzees from the pet trade. Um, and some people were surrendering their chimps. Um, so nobody had really told that story before for film or they hadn't told it because it was a fairly new project. So when I was out there, I just realized there's something more there. And I got back, I wrote up a treatment, did a taster, met my friend Ben Garrett, who ended up being the presenter on the series, who also was connected to that couple. So it all just kind of came together. And then we pitched the um, the series to the BBC and that got commissioned. So I think like pretty much, yeah, before I graduated, we had already started producing that TV series. Wow, um, that's amazing. So would, yeah. you, would you kind of recommend to people like kind of try, maybe try and make an overlap? you know so it's not like that stark kind of scary space when you when you leave uni it sounds like you've had quite a nice overlap yeah I think if you're if you're waiting until you graduate or till you leave to start looking for opportunities that's yeah you're probably going to be sitting around for a while because it mm -hmm. takes the time for people to get back to you and I mean from start to finish that for me getting back from the trip to the idea of getting commissioned and us starting to produce it was like six months so mm -hmm. I started in May and it does, yeah, it takes a while. But I would say, you know, if you're in film or journalism, obviously it's all about what ideas that you're bringing to the table. So it's really good, even if, you know, an idea doesn't get taken up, it's really good to show potential employers that you can pitch ideas and you have, you know, you're coming with your own ideas. They really like that. So mm. I think that's quite a good thing to do um, when you're trying to get job interviews. Mm. And it sounds like quite a lot of your focus is is quite travel related have you had to change any of your practices since covid since it's not been quite as easy to travel as much yeah that's such a good question um i was thinking about you were saying earlier that sort of journalism studies have obviously been kind of disrupted because of covid and it's just the same for me when you know when i was getting into an industry where I need to be out on location getting this film experience and getting directing experience obviously everything shut down but I think the good thing 
that did come out of it was we started see, um, seeking out and working with local crews a lot more. So the next project I did after Baby Chimp Rescue was called The Year Earth Changed. It's on Apple. Um, it is all about what wildlife did during the pandemic when humans kind of mm. were stuck indoors and stepped back. And for that, we didn't take, the production team didn't travel anywhere, no flights. We contacted hundreds and hundreds of scientists and camera operators in like every country on earth practically, and just said, you know, what's going on in your backyard? Are there any like wildlife behavior changes that you're noticing? And what kind of stories can you follow from right where you are? And we put the whole film together that way. So I think I think that was really cool because the industry now is coming around to fostering local talent a lot more. I think they care a lot more about developing those kind of networks, um, supporting people abroad, and then bringing in more like local voices for storytelling, which is great. That's really interesting. That's a really nice way to look at the fact that if we can't travel, who can do it for us there? You know, um, yeah. that's a that's a really good way of looking at it. And like you said, harvesting that that local talent. Um, apart from put, putting COVID aside for a minute, what other challenges have you faced since you since you left the uh, warm safety of, of New York? <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe the one that I touched on earlier, it's like, it's a lot different when you're producing your own film and you have total creative freedom over it than how it works in the real world. And that, I mean, that's the same thing with journalism, right? You'll have editors and people who are feeding back and on your stories and stuff. Um, but it can definitely make a stronger creative like project, but it also is kind of, yeah, you can have some growing pains having so many sort of cooks in the kitchen and kind of, you know, everybody's not always on the same page and sort of working to different briefs and responding to different feedback and, and trying to do all that. And yeah, keep a smile on your face and not get frustrated when it drags on and on. Yes. Yeah. Communication is, is the key, isn't it? With, with what, with whatever. Um, and have, have you, are you meeting more, with more people digitally now? And, and sometimes that can be trickier or? Yeah, um, I think it's kind of going back now to a bit more in-person working, which I really like. It's so nice. I didn't realize how much I missed, yeah, being in the office with everybody and just having those side conversations and like creative brainstorms and asking people for, um, you know, connections or stories or references. You just can't do it in those casual chats in the same way mm. online. Um, so yeah, that's been that's been nice. Yeah, so many ideas come out of banter you know yeah. and and so many kind of like oh you know that person oh my god like can we can we talk about that yeah it's really interesting um do you have a particular are you just gonna like ask for one highlight so far like a moment where you go yes I'm so glad I followed followed this path um yes yeah, I think probably being out in Liberia and filming baby chimp rescue just because we we got to work with them and go back I think eight times over like a year and a half and that was one of the things I was always missing as a journalist. Like, you know, you go in and you tell somebody's story and then you leave and you might not ever see them again. So it was, it was really nice to have that kind of long-term relationship with the people who are working there and the chimpanzees and just be part of their story um, and help them tell that. And obviously like very close access to the chimpanzees was, uh, you know, shouldn't be happening because they shouldn't be out of the wild, but was incredible just to like see them grow and get over their trauma and like have them jump all over you. <laughs> <laughs> and then the best the best bit I think that kind of restored my faith in social media as well is when the, the program went out um basically the UK audience ended up raising half of the money for them to build a new sanctuary which was amazing so wow. yeah it was a huge outpouring of, like of support that I wasn't quite expecting obviously that was what we were aiming for but 
didn't know that it would be that big and there were like little kids having bake sales and costumes all over the UK and I just oh. thought oh my god that's so touching oh that's yeah that's, a, that's a, of, yeah the power of social media yeah that's a faith restorer right there that's that's really lovely um and just before we uh swing out to uh questions from the the, the roaring public um do you have any like what are your top tips for people who want to follow the same kind of path as you um I think in media well if, if we're talking about wildlife filmmaking specifically and also journalism like it's so incredibly competitive that I think you need to be really proactive like bring your own stories like get your foot in the door however you can get meetings don't be afraid to like bother people you know you just got obviously because like as a as a journalist and a filmmaker you need to not be afraid to like pick up the phone go meet somebody you know be have those sort of direct conversations so do that you know with your potential employers as well mm -hmm. um and then I think I've said this is one I kind of always say but uh, don't compare yourself to other people because I think that that really gets you in like a negative headspace and everybody has something different that they that they bring in a different direction they would take stories in um so don't worry about like what somebody next to you is doing or achieving just yeah focus on what your niche and what you can bring to the table yeah that's such a good point it's really it's really difficult to to not compare ourselves to others um, and what you're saying about you know picking up the phone going out and talking to people as such as I think people really struggle with that nowadays since COVID yeah. you know especially like from from the point of view of a of a student you know we were kind of you know behind closed doors for a year and we literally couldn't go and interview anyone yeah. and now it's like right get out there go and talk to people throw this microphone in someone's face and actually you know there's a <laughs> it's quite um it's quite intimidating um, and it's kind of working out your way of communicating and, and how to make the other person feel safe as well. Um, so yeah, it's a really, get used to confronting people again. I don't mean confronting as in like, <laughs> your finger, but like, you know what I mean? Like actually speaking to people. No, but you, um, said, some, you said something really key is like making people feel safe. Like what, you know, what I do to get the best out of a contributor during an interview is try to make them feel as comfortable as possible. And you can't do that if you're feeling like super nervous to do it. So just if you try to kind of put yourself in their shoes and think about them, it might help you get over your sort of own nerves of doing face-to-face sort of -face stuff. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's their story at the end of the day, you know, and you just want to kind of hold them through that um, and, and be able to allow them to tell it. Amazing. Right. Shush me. Um, so, um, right. So we're going to throw it out to, um, so we've got a few questions here. Amazing. So first question, how dangerous is this job? Sounds like a, sounds like photojournalism. I'm rather curious. So yeah, how, how, how dangerous is it? <laughs> That's a good question. I think my parents would laugh at that question. Um, I think it can be as dangerous or not as you want to make it. <laughs> like, I've probably chosen the higher end of the spectrum. <laughs> um, you don't have to go and cover a revolution in another country. That's optional. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think you can do, you can work on lovely programs like Spring Watch, which probably like danger, hopefully fairly low. Usually the health <laughs> is like, pretty good. Uh, but I think a lot of people obviously who get into wildlife film want that adventure so you are going to remote places but I will say like working for the BBC and in the UK in general health and safety is like very very good so I feel very supported at the BBC that um, and even when we were going through UE doing like risk assessments on our films um, that all the safety concerns are thought through and managed whereas like as a journalist you don't often have the time to 
think through the safety plan in that kind of level of detail and you're often going out on your own so I think that yeah that can be dangerous but there's always like precautions that you should take. So would you say as when you were doing more print journalism slightly more unsafe than doing the wildlife film? Yeah for yeah. sure yeah definitely I think well, like when we go out with the BBC like you have a whole crew you're supported by you know a massive network in the office by medical evacuation plans all of that stuff so think like you hope nothing can will go wrong but if it does you have like a huge support network to turn to yeah and and with how rapid journalism is at the moment as well like some of the footage from the revolution I I, I, I included it in one of my essays actually a couple of years ago you know people like threw themselves into the crowds to be able to get that kind of footage and to get those yeah. stories and things and um I can only imagine how how scary that must have been but you know people want the footage you know even with like what's going on in Leicester at the moment people want yeah. that footage and and it means sometimes putting yourself in a dangerous position um right next question what was a surprising challenge that you came across while in the process of making baby chimp rescue was there something that seemed easy on paper but once attempted seemed quite physically and mentally demanding That's a really <laughs> yeah, good question every, everything about it um <laughs> Oh, a couple of things just really working with the chimpanzees because because the youngest babies they didn't have a sanctuary at the time we were filming it so the youngest babies are staying in their house with caregivers like 24 7 um so they're all like out and about while you're filming they're very curious about the camera equipment and I was doing sound recording so I had like the mixer on me the boom obviously which looks like this cool little tree for them to climb on with like dangly wires and stuff so they're always jumping on me, jumping on my head. And baby chimpanzees are strong. They can really like, <laughs> can hurt even though they're tiny. Um, and then the other hard thing was like the older ones in the, they were in an enclosure on the grounds of that um, former biomedical lab actually. But it was sort of a makeshift enclosure with like fencing kind of around it. And the chimpanzees were smart. You know, they, as soon as you turn your back they start pushing the fence out to grab something off the camera. Like, so you just have to be vigilant pretty much all the time wow so quite unpredictable then. yeah they're just like they're just so clever and they're so single-minded and they can like completely fake you out you think they're doing something else and they're just waiting for you to like drop your focus for a minute and then swoop in there <laughs> kind of like toddlers <laughs> yeah they're just yeah it's amazing how smart they are was it this is a this is a a, a me loving baby animals question was it hard to say goodbye to the chimps really hard yeah especially the little babies that we had been with like all that time in really close proximity and like you have some that are your favorites that will always like come up to you and one would do kind of like yoga moves with me in my hands and stuff like climb on me and like flip over himself and <laughs> it's so cute um yeah it was that was amazing it was hard to say goodbye and I haven't been back since I'd love to go back and and see now that they're all moved into like an appropriate sanctuary mm. um but the good thing about that as well is that like the, it's a bit bittersweet but obviously like you shouldn't be having those close interactions with chimpanzees they should be with their mothers in the wild and they but because they've been taken away they need that kind of 24 7 close human contact so that's why that project does that I just want to kind of clarify that that yeah of course yeah, yeah, chimpanzees, yeah, yeah. obviously not pets shouldn't really be playing with yes. them and like most established sanctuaries you would never have that kind of interaction but it was just the sort of situation of trying to get them to proper facilities that made that happen mm. yeah if you're if you're that close to a wild animal something's not quite right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah perfect um 
so yeah can you tell us the story of pitching to the BBC how did you set it, uh, how did you set it up and how did it play out so yeah what was the process of pitching to the BBC um yeah so I had already before we contacted them edited a video taster of the couple to give a sense of like the human characters and a bit of the baby chimpanzees that was a couple minutes long and then I did a written um like a two-page treatment as well and then we contacted the develop, there's a development team within the Natural History Unit, which I'm actually working on at the moment, that is responsible for generating new series and program ideas. So we reached out to the exec of that and um, yeah, set up a meeting and then Ben, Garrett and I went in and, and pitched the idea and they were really, really into it right from the beginning. So that was good. Um, and then from there, they developed it with us a bit further and then they take it sort of up the chain to the commissioners at BBC and then there's a bit of back and forth over story and stuff and then they decide. Actually, our process was really short and straightforward. Some ideas take like four years to get commissioned. So we were pretty, pretty lucky on the first go. And did you have those contacts with the BBC because of the time with Yui or was it a cold call? Um, in that case, with those specific, well, the people we ended up pitching to, I think I had seen one of the execs before do a talk to our program and the other one I didn't know. So yeah, some of them, yes, because of the course. And was that face to face, the pitch? Yeah. Was that quite, was that quite nerve wracking? Uh, it was going in, but actually the, like the pitches aren't really as formal as what um, you're probably thinking or what I was thinking at the time. And um, actually that that our program, the Wildlife Filming Masters, we go in and pitch our master's films at the BBC to an exec just for practice. So that's that's quite good. I was so nervous during that though. Um, and the actual pitch of the TV series was more like just an informal conversation. But I think it was really helpful to have the video because that gets gives people a sense of the story and gets them excited about it sometimes in the way that a piece of paper can't. Mm, that's a really good tip, actually, having that footage already and, and also showing that you've really thought about, you know, visually how it's going to go and, and how you're going to access those people. That's a really good tip. Yeah. Um, oh, I just had a question and I've totally forgotten what it was. What I was you... at, can I add, piggyback? Oh, please, yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that the other thing that really helped was that you know, we already had access to this couple. They wanted to work with us because I had been out there and filmed with them and started creating a relationship. And then bringing in like a presenter who was already attached to it as well is like kind of unusual. So that all just sort of came together and we are bringing them a sort of whole package deal, which I think helped get the commission through faster. Mm, yeah, definitely. Are you able to tell us any of the things that you're working on at the moment? Um, <laughs> I can't tell you the things that I'm developing because they're, yeah, confidential, but I've been just been out on a shoot for a major um, natural history unit landmark that will be coming out next year. Um, the last project I worked on um, was called Our Changing Planet, which is a seven year environmental series. The first year was out on BBC One last year. Um, and the idea is that we would return to these iconic landscapes like the Arctic, like the Amazon, year on year and see the changes that they're going through. So I think that that's quite exciting that the BBC committed to do such a long-term, like purely environmental series um, mm -hmm. was really, yeah, really good. And do you feel like that kind of stuff, I mean, this is a bit of a stupid question because obviously you do, but why, why is that kind of stuff so important at the moment? I think when I, it was funny because when I was doing the master's program, I definitely remember hearing talks from people in the industry who said like, you can't get a conservation film commission it was like the c word like the dirty c word no <laughs> like if you pitch a film with a conservation angle it's not going to happen and I think those were people who had been in the industry a long time where that had been the situation for a while but then it like pretty much rapidly changed 
at around the time that we were doing the masters. And I just think the more that we get those messages into mainstream media, where they're not just, you know, a small bit at the end of the program, where they're completely ingrained into the narrative, uh, like, yeah, that's so important. And the challenge is finding how to tell those stories, which can often be really like sad and depressing in a way that's not gonna make people turn the TV off. So it's like, how do you tell a climate change story in a kind of entertaining way? Mm, in, in a solutions focused way. And yeah, yeah. You're, you're totally right. In a way that's not gonna make people turn the, I don't wanna see another you know, choking turtle or all that kind of thing, where, where, yeah. are, the, where are the solutions? Um, cool, so um, if anyone else has got any more questions, please do um, send them in. Um, I just have one more. Um, is there anything that you would like to add? Not anything? that I can think of. I mean, I, well, I, well, we can continue on that thought that we just were starting down in terms of like solutions focused environmental programming. I think one way that we tried to do that with our changing planet um, was really focused on the inspiring people in the field. Like, for example, I filmed with one couple in California who they're wildlife vets and they go out and rescue wildlife from the forest fires. And there is currently no state or federal funding in California for that work. So like, even though wildfires are obviously a massive problem, there's no official like help for the animals. Nobody really even knows how many bears there are in California, how, you know, how many wolves there are in California. They're, nobody's even like done funded population level surveys of this. And, and this couple, you know, they have their own full-time jobs at a university. They have like three jobs. They have a farm of rescue llamas and horses and stuff like that. And like, despite all of that, they just like get up every day and go do this work and just like, you know, work themselves to the bone. I think following people like that is really inspiring because they're like, well, you don't have time to have climate anxiety because you're just doing something. And I think mm. that's the, that is the solution. And how do you find people like that? Um, lots of different ways. Like I read a lot of news, just looking around online. Um, sometimes you'll see a program on TV where someone has just a very brief little appearance in it. And you're like, I think they'd be good for something more. Um, clips on YouTube, social media, like what, working, like looking at conservation organizations and wildlife rescue organizations on social media and seeing, you know, who their teams are. Mm. Uh, but I'm always just trying to find, yeah, people who are doing inspiring work and proactive solutions, I guess. So it's always kind of like having the, that um, that that mindset of, oh, that could be something, you know, almost never switching that off. Yeah. And yeah. then just always having a file with like, yeah, people I'm going to contact later, like little bits of ideas. Maybe they're not right for what you're doing right now, but you could pick it up later. Mm, that's cool. Um, cool. So we've had another question in. Uh, do you think misleading, uh, sorry, do you think misleading information on TV is becoming more of a norm around the world or just in specific areas? That is a really good question. Um, I feel like, okay, I haven't lived in the US for a while, but I feel like obviously what's happened in the US with the Trump administration and with the way that like, first of all, it was great that media is democratized by the internet because everybody can be their own publisher, but also it means that not everybody's adhering to journalistic standards and at the same time demonizing journalists. So it's just become like a really confusing media landscape and you obviously have a lot of people capitalizing on that and making money off of that. Um, so I think what's happened with the media landscape in the US and how polarized it's become um, and how there is so much like actual just <laughs> incorrect information out there that people are recirculating and like with social media how it's a feedback loop of you know what you already want to see is what they feed you more of all of that is just like a really toxic media culture um 
I don't know if it's happening everywhere in the world, but I would imagine that, you know, because it's happening in the US that it does free up more sort of sentiment and practices like that in other places as well. Mm, And because the US is so dominating in so many you know cultures around the world it's almost like it can follow suit as well can't it like we kind of get sucked into that that way of doing things I remember the statistic us being told a statistic when we started studying journalism that we're trusted less than estate agents I was like oh (laughs) yeah that's not fun that's not that's not a good one Uh, no offense to anyone who wants to become an estate agent (laughs) no it's like it's such an important job I think yeah and you have to just stick to your guns and stick to your standards but that is kind of one of the benefits of becoming a filmmaker as well, because you don't have that sort of, people don't look at it as negatively as journalism, but you still have the potential to influence the media narrative like massively and to reach like millions of, like every BBC program reaches millions of people around the world. So I think for me, yeah, it was a good, good sort of move in terms of being less hated and more <laughs> like reaching people through emotional stories and entertainment mm-hmm. rather than like journalism. But everyday journalism is like, is so important. You know, I have friends who are in Ukraine and I, yeah, do kind of miss being on the front line of stories. Like there's no, there's no substitute for like boots on the ground, really like good ethical journalism. Yeah, definitely. Um, where can people kind of like follow your process your projects your what you're up to um where can people follow you um I'm not a big fan of social media but That's I do use right. Instagram for posting my projects and stuff so um my Instagram handle is linstagramo um and on Twitter, I'm on LP in the field and then I usually like post when I have um programs coming out on the BBC so yeah. that's good that's absolutely fine that you're not a social social media person I think it's so bad for your head oh 100 100 um amazing so unless um anyone's got any last questions that we want to pop in I just want to uh huge thank you to Lindsay that's such a wonderful um story of Yui to Liberia to everywhere and all over the world um and yeah really really inspiring I hope everybody um enjoyed uh, enjoyed that as much as I did For more information about the Inspire Me series, including other podcasts from the series, visit ue.ac.uk forward slash study forward slash block zero forward slash inspire me. Thanks for listening.